0: Your old man's been blasted out of his wheels And your king-sized brother's been twisted like a pretzel You're all that's left, lover And you ain't gonna be around for long Ladies and gentlemen,
1: welcome to violence The word and the act While violence cloaks itself in a plethora of disguises Its favorite mantle still remains, sex Violence devours all it touches. Its voracious appetite rarely fulfilled. Yet violence doesn't only destroy, it creates and molds as well. Let's examine closely then this dangerously evil creation, this new breed, encased and contained within the supple skin of woman. The softness is there, the unmistakable smell of female.
2: Once in a generation, a director comes along that has his eye on American culture and thinks he or she can do better. A director that refuses to accept the status quo and helps usher in the future of cinema, sometimes before the mainstream is ready. My season three filmmaker profile is on Russ Meyer, the visionary breast-obsessed director that changed the way film nudity was seen forever.
0: You girls a bunch of nudists? Or you just uh, short of clothes?
2: From nudie cuties to ruffies to softcore to huge-budget 20th Century Fox sequels, Russ Meyer made the kind of films that few dared to see but had everyone talking for years to come. Today, I present Russ Meyer's boob dynasty. Slum is a film history, a lowbrow look into the high art of cinema. Every episode is an in-depth look into a niche topic of
3: film that is not normally discussed in play company. I'm Slate, and I'm Tom. And each week, one of us researches our respective topic, writes an episode, and then schools the other. We discuss everything from black exploitation to ethnically inclusive street gangs to backwater hick rapists. If there's a film subject too taboo, we haven't found it yet. Welcome. Tom. Hey Slate. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? Oh man, I'm great. Pumped for this episode. Pumped? Yeah. You're breast pumped for this one? Yeah. Well yeah. done.
2: There's gonna be a lot of boobs, a lot of boob talk here.
3: I'll make do with that. Yeah. Somehow I'll get by. <phone rings>
2: So real quick, I want to talk a little bit about people keep asking us, what is our process? How do we do this? And how long does it take talking about the podcast as a whole? As we've said before, it takes three weeks to write an episode. Lately, it's been taking four to five weeks to it write an while, episode. Yeah. The way that I do it is once I come up with a topic, I list out all of the movies, it, titles and, and dates. Yeah. And then I start figuring out the ones that are the best representations. And I start expanding those parts of it. And then at usually some point towards the end, I start pulling all of the pieces together and then looking for a connecting thread.
3: I'm similar. I usually pull a lot of sources. So I do a big chunk of research to start off my basic framework Mm -hmm. and then add in stuff in the middle here and pull other pieces and and clarify certain bits of information. So I have like a rough skeleton Uh of information I have and then I start writing it and then I'll just keep pulling in as I go that'll fill gaps I think I have got it that makes sense
2: and then usually what we do is we write them we print them out and you and I sit here and we record them yes we do then everybody always asks about the editing so we each edit our own episodes we do the first thing we do we trim all of the fat and we cut these fuckers tight
3: we we'll try to anyway yeah Yeah.
2: we cut Just out cut all of our ums can. if we tap the microphone if if we have any banter back and forth to us that doesn't feel like it's yeah, if, it if we're fit, rambling then we cut all that out because out. there's enough fucking film podcasts out there that are two people rambling about movies yeah, so we try not to do that too much yeah then we add in all of the clips I send over mine to you you master them yeah so you do all the final mastering, then I do all of the artwork and usually post everything. It's hours and hours and time. hours and hours yeah. of work.
3: We do it for you, yeah. So yeah. we hope you. Luckily, enjoy we get it. paid
2: so much for this that it just makes it all. Yeah, work all the out. the
3: dollars that we get in the right. revenue. Mm-hmm. Then yeah, still, still so waiting much. on that
2: check. So I'm going to start this episode by talking about boobs. Wow, that's a, a <laughs> big, that's big a twist. I didn't see that. Russ Meyer was obsessed with big boobs from a young age, and they were the inspiration for basically all of his movies. Sure. While I was trying to come up with a working title the working title was boob king which i thought was kind of funny but i ended up with russ meyer's boob dynasty
3: either one i looked
2: up synonyms for boobs on urban dictionary and there were a lot yes like a lot a lot yeah yeah so i picked through the list and found some of the best ones and i want to tell you a few of my favorites this this is a boobs greatest hits this is this is all of the greatest boob names of all time there's a lot of them are you ready sure Tits, well, titties, classics, tiggle bitties, jugs, mm-hmm. melons, cans hooters, dirty pillows, gazongas, yabos, knockers, mammaries, fun bags, honkers, headlights, baps, meat puppets, tatas, naturals, boobies, guns, Bahama mamas, balloons, bowegos, big brown eyes, blinkers, babambas, bombs, bazooms, boulders, bristles, brown suckies, babatos, bups, Cadillac bumper bullets, cassabas, chevertines, cones, <coughs> gadoinkers, doorknobs, floppers, fried eggs. I like a good fried egg. Yeah. Fogies, gams, gazangas.
3: Mm, I like bristles. I'm just gonna call. I'm gonna talk about <laughs> nice bristles. I'm only halfway done.
2: Do you want me to keep going? Or I don't you think done? anybody
3: wants you to keep going. All right.
2: My f- personal favorite I left at the end was the balcony.
3: Fine. Balcony's nice. That's right. charming. A lot
2: of words for boobs. So apparently, Russ Meyer wasn't the only person that was obsessed with boobs. Basically, clearly and not. I guess every heterosexual man loves a good rack. Oh come on. Gay men like boobs too, as a aesthetic. I think we find them interesting and not that threatening. Well, so to get to know Russ Meyer, you have to understand his early life and relationship with women. Russ was born in 1922 in California to Lydia and William Meyer, who divorced soon after he was born, and he basically never saw his father again. Since he was raised entirely by his mother, he depended on her for everything, and she wanted him to have everything he ever wanted, including his first film camera, which she paid for by hawking her wedding ring. He made numerous amateur films throughout his teens, but then one day he and his friends snuck into a San Francisco burlesque house, and what he saw there changed the course of his life forever. Her name was Margaret Sullivan, and apparently, she had just like a just big fat old titties. I couldn't find any pictures of her, and people that talked about her said that she was a pretty run of the mill stripper with big boobs. Um, but she was an inspiration to a young Russ Meyer, and pretty much set the standard for the only type of woman he would be interested in the rest of his life.
3: Hold on I gotta stop you right there. I'm challenging you right now to use a different word for boobs. Throughout the rest of this podcast, through the entire thing. Okay. You already said titties and boobs, so that's my challenge. Okay. I don't know if you can do it. I might be. I think I probably can. But there's. An, I think there's enough to get you through. So
2: Wagos is definitely coming up next because exciting. His first professional job was when he enlisted in World War II, where he was a cameraman. Okay. He was actually a very good cameraman. He made some shorts and tons of newsreel footage, some of which was featured in the 1971 film Patton. Oh, wow. Yeah. He also lost his virginity in a whorehouse with his friends, where he took a look at the women and chose the one with the biggest boegos, (laughs) a woman named Babette. And she and Margaret Sullivan kind of became the template for every other woman that he would confront in his life, whether starring in movies or romantic or both. Sure. When he came back to America, he had a hard time breaking into the film industry, so he turned to shooting stills with pinup models. Okay. Back then, there was no porn industry, so if you wanted to see a naked woman, you could usually send away money in the mail and in return would get a few printed stills of nude women, usually just fried eggs and butts. And Russ Meyer was among the best of the... Did you get it? Friday? eggs? I know, I got it. You're, it's okay. good. You're doing good. All right. And he was among the best of the photographers. He even managed to land a few gigs shooting for Playboy. Mm-hmm. Remember that the 1950s were super tame when it came to... I mean, really anything. Mm-hmm. And Russ Meyer hated that. He actually, like, hated 50s culture. It was really funny because he was so patriotic. He hated Germany. He hated yeah. the Nazis. He loved America. He thought America was just, like, the greatest thing. But he thought 50s culture was awful.
3: Yeah. And it kind of it was. Yeah.
2: He hated the whole Norman Rockwell idea. He thought it was way behind the times. Yeah. And he wanted a world that could appreciate a woman's body without secrecy. Yeah, sure. I think we all do. Right around this time, you may remember from our episode on male nudity that after Excelsior Pictures versus New York Board of Regents in 1964, the Supreme Court decided nudity in itself was not considered obscene. Yep. Right after a slew of nudist films came out, remember Doris Wishman? Oh yeah, of course. That were mostly footage of nudist camps, you know, things like cupcakes and butts only. Well, well done, yes. Uh-huh, that could show on the exploitation circuit without facing obscenity charges. Russ Meyer was a frequenter of the nudist films, but he thought they sucked. They usually had no plot, no stars, no dialogue, just a shitty voiceover talking about the nudist lifestyle, and the worst of all, they featured regular people. He wanted to see nudist movies with Playboy caliber models and stories. He said, quote, The man on the street gets sick of seeing oatmeal in his wife's housecoat and curlers in her hair. He knew his world was all fantasy, and he wanted to share it with the world. But since the movies he wanted to see didn't exist, he decided to make them on his own his first feature was called The Immoral Mr. Tease, Mm -hmm. and it was pretty landmark.
0: For years, man has retreated back to nature to make peace with himself. Back where the sight of greenery against an azure blue sky. The sweet fresh salt smell of the tide gently kissing the sandy shore
2: the plot mr t's is a door-to-door salesman that is clumsy with women after having dental surgery he somehow gets x-ray vision and is able to see clothed women without their clothes so he'll picture them you know he'll look at them they'll be clothed and then all of a sudden they'll superimpose the same woman nude you know and so he's seeing that but no one else is. Hmm. he goes to see a psychiatrist but he also sees her naked That's pretty much it, but what's interesting is he used the exact template for nudism films, but then made something completely different. Mr. T's had a plot, even though it had no actual dialogue, just a voiceover explaining what was happening, just like earlier nudism films. It had naked women, but these weren't nudist camp women. These were giant, starter-buttoned Women. Wow. I love your challenge, but it's going to be tricky. It's It's going to be tricky. Yeah. Starter starter buttoned women, pin up women. All right. Yeah, I like
3: starter buttoned.
2: And most interestingly, he did all of this without Mr. T's ever touching a woman. Remember that sex and intimacy with nudity was a big no-no. Yeah. So he managed to make a sexual film with none of the sex using voyeurism instead. Gotcha. In addition, while not necessarily a great filmmaker per se, he was a great cameraman. Mm -hmm. The movie is not much to watch now. It's kind of a combination of Jerry Lewis-type gags interspersed with big gadoinkers. Mm. But it almost looks modern. Yeah. Most bad movies of the time are bad because they're poorly shot they're poorly lit and specifically they're boring yeah of course Russ Meyer's films are none of that
3: no not at all
2: the Immoral Mr. Tease faced a lot of distribution and exhibition problems and was shut down in its first screening and the print was confiscated. After numerous shady deals and a cut or two to the work print, The Immoral Mr. Tease was released in major cities nationwide in 1960 and was a huge success. It played a theater in Seattle for nine months. A theater in LA played it for three years. Wow. When all was said and done, it made a million and a half on the underground exploitation box office on a budget of 24000 So Damn. in today's terms, if you made a cheap movie for 10 million dollars. That's a cheap movie. That's a cheap
3: movie. Your box
2: times. office would be 620 million. Shit. Yeah. So that's, that's a blockbuster. A really great profit, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is. A slew of imitations would pour out over the next couple of years, some of which Russ Meyer made himself. This genre was known as the nudie cuties, where there was a voyeur, mm-hmm. naked women from more than half of the film, and positively no touching or sex. Gotcha. His next four films were even the Handyman from 1961, which actually featured his wife Eve in her only starring role. Hmm. Wild Gals of the Naked West from 1962. <laughs> Woo-hoo. A- Woohoo! We should have talked about that in Exploitation. We yeah,
3: should have, yeah, no shit.
2: Europe in the Raw from 1963, which was kind of made to capitalize on the Mondo Cain phenomena of real life, that is basically kind of like the template for reality TV today. Yeah. And Fanny Hill, a 1964 nudie comedy version of the kind of classic British novel. Yeah, I remember that. By 1964, the nudie cutie craze was dying, thanks in part to the mainstream beach party movie craze. You remember this? It's like Annette Funicello and all of that.
3: Beach movies! It's beach blanket bingo or whatever the fuck these movies. Yeah, Yeah, yeah.
2: And 1963's Blood Feast, which introduced moviegoers to gore, nudie cuties were out of style. And so Russ Meyer knew he needed to do something new. He decided to shoot a new film in 35mm, he chose black and white probably because that was all he could afford at the time, and he decided to walk away from comedies and lose the childlike voyeurism of his previous movies. This time he decided to make sex a serious topic, in the format of a working class infidelity drama. This style is known as his rural gothic phase, but in film history it's better known as the first in the roughy genre. Right. Do you know what the first Ruffy was? Yes, but I forgot. It's his movie Lorna. Okay, no, yeah. I forgot that. Yeah. Jimmy Boy!
0: Jimmy Boy. Be right down as soon as I finish making that lunch and kiss Lorna, goodbye. Well, get your keys to down here fast. We're late.
2: The plot of Lorna is simple. Lorna is a woman who's not being sexually satisfied by her salt mine working husband. One afternoon she's attacked and raped by a young, handsome man, and her sexuality is awakened. I love these rape movies. We talk about it all the time. When yeah. we're like, and then somebody raped her, but she liked it. And it's yeah, like that's oh boy. really troublesome. Yeah. She begins a fiery relationship with him until her husband finds out and comes home to confront them. He ends up getting stabbed and then accidentally impaling her on a hook that was intended for the boyfriend. There's a grim reaper kind of preacher theme that runs throughout and serves as a type of, you know, you get what you deserve theme that was common in exploitation movies at the time. Yeah. The best review of Lorna came from author and director William Rotzler, who said, quote, with Lorna, Meyer established the formula that made him rich and famous. The formula of people filmed at top hate, top lust, top heavy. Nice clever yeah so let's talk about the Ruffy for a second yes let's we chatted a little about it in our doris wishman episode i basically right. said they were movies where women get smacked around a lot and while true i didn't mention that it was more of a woman in peril situation but with a risque sex plot that went along with it
0: just what the hell do you want well, you said you were kind of lonely so i thought would come over and uh, kind of pass the time of day and if you're real nice to me i might scratch your back Get
2: your damn my door! While Russmeyer is usually credited with making the first, he probably wouldn't have made Lorna without Herschel Gordon Lewis and David Friedman's Scum of Earth. Have you heard this? I Scum never of heard the heard Earth? Of that. No, I haven't heard of that. So I actually saw it recently, unrelated to the episode, and it's, it's really something. Let me see if I can do it justice. I think I remember that it's about kind of like a teenage girl, mm-hmm. teenage age girl, you know, she's probably 18, and she goes to a photographer to get kind of normal fashion photos taken mm-hmm. over the series of the movie. They keep talking her into getting more and more naked. Right. And then once she's like, oh, no, I shouldn't have done that, they blackmail her with those photos to do more right. stuff. So it's kind of like she's constantly in peril the whole time. Mm -hmm. And they use what she's done against her.
3: I got something to add to that. Because during my female nudity podcast, season one... I had a, like a, one of those instructional movies or warning films in there, and it was the same basic plot of you know the girls that run off to Hollywood, yeah. and, and they get caught up in this photography type of thing, and they kind of sort of get in a, a bad loop. So that's an exploitation version of this, but it's still a warning to young girls that you're going to be exploited if you go out and take these risque photographs right. and shit like that. But so. of
2: course, I mean, a lot of times these movies, and I think that when you were talking about, I'm actually I'm researching one of my next episodes, which is on venereal diseases, Oh, um, but, you know, they they do the whole kind of like warning, like you shouldn't do any of this and then exploit the whole fuck out of the whole thing right. or whatever for mm-hmm. male audiences and basically like lust up the women in the movie. And so you can see it's like it's educational so you shouldn't do this but they make it for men. Right. You know, of so course. that we can, it's the only way you can actually see, you know, nudity back then.
3: You'll get VD and die. Right. Here's pictures. Here's pictures, the, here's the pictures <laughs> yeah. of naked
2: women. So it's back to Scum of the Earth, like yeah. most of the Herschel Gordon-Lewis Directed movies, it's it's relatively boring and it's very amateurish filmmaking. Sure, but it's not without its moments. Its violence is more implied than literal, but you know, it was it was definitely the beginning of something on the exploitation market, right? Huh. Lorna probably gets most of the credit since it's a much better movie. Russ Meyer was actually a pretty good filmmaker by this time. Yeah, and Scum of the Earth looks like it was shot on a different planet than Lorna. Lorna was a is a very nice looking film. Wow. Lorna was a huge success. It played in drive-ins, seedy adults-only theaters, and even managed to play a few mainstream theaters as well. It was constantly in trouble from religious groups, and Russ and company paid off most of the police to let it run. <laughs> That's they, awesome. Yeah, they fought every case to shut down the movie, and they won a lot, but they also lost a lot. Sure. Lorna was prosecuted in Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Florida. In the next few years, a slew of roughies would come out, including Doris Wishman's Bad Girls Go to Hell. Yep, great Michael. great Yeah, Michael Finlay's Body of a Female. You remember Michael Finlay because he and his wife later made the movie. I forgot the title of it, but it would go on to be the movie Snuff.
3: Honestly, I got to look at my notes, but yeah, it was cut as a totally different movie and it didn't do any business. Uh, it was it was a flop until they added some extra footage at the end to make it look like this person was actually being killed. It was totally different lighting, different cameras. It was just an add-on. They called it Snuff. They did only in South America where life is cheap, tagline, which yeah. is still offensive. And, uh, and then it blew the fuck up. Right.
2: I actually listened to an interview with Roberta Finlay uh, on the Rialto Report. They found her. It took them forever to find her. Yeah. And then and she does a wonderful interview about all of the movies that she made with Michael Finlay.
3: I'll have to listen um, to Um
2: yeah, I'll uh, put it on the website. It's really great. Great. And even Russ Meyer made two more ruffies. He made Mud Honey and Motor Psycho, mm-hmm. both in nineteen sixty-five. You say motorcycle? motor psycho? Motor Psycho. That's my new band. He comes up with a good title. That's motor a good psycho. title, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then came his next and arguably only classic film. You know what it is?
3: I do. Do you want me to say it? Yeah, sure. Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. It's the best title of a movie of it's, all it's time. It's wonderful. Yeah. It's a great movie. Yeah. I love this movie. Yeah, it's really good. If
0: you want Ladies and gentlemen, go, go for a wild, wild ride with the Watusi Cats. But beware, the sweetest kittens have the sharpest claws. For your own safety, see Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Wild women, wild wheels, race the fastest pussy cats, and they'll beat you to death. Superwoman, Belted, Buckled, and booted! Yeah. <laughs>
2: Pretty much everyone at this point has heard of Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, whether it's through Rob Zombie, Quentin Tarantino, Mm -hmm. John Waters, or or through Tura Santana. Tura Santana was a tough stripper that had some small parts in a few B-movies when Russ Meyer cast her in the movie. I haven't really talked about the type of person that Russ was, and this is probably a good time since the dynamic between the two of them was pretty epic. Russ wasn't perfect, but Mm -hmm. he in general was a one-woman man. There were frequent women, but when he was with one of them, for the most part, he didn't sleep around. He had a no-sex policy with his leading ladies as well. He thought the casting couch approach of Hollywood was super gross. Yeah. He liked to film his women as the audience saw them, untouchable. Okay. Not that he never slept with any of his actresses, but for the most part, there was no sex on a Russ Meyer set. Okay. He was also really tough. He worked his actors, and especially his actresses, very, very hard. He wasn't just making bad exploitation movies, he was doing something so different at the time, and no other director was doing, you know, this type of film. Right. And he knew from the beginning that he had found something special with Tora Santana. Mm -hmm. For starters, she was a real firecracker. Yeah, I bet. She had allegedly been sexually assaulted as a child, and since then, she hadn't taken any shit from anyone. And she's probably the only actress that Russ Meyer worked with that, you know, really had the upper hand in the relationship yeah and it shows in the movie like she is tough as fuck she is yeah.
3: tough she's scary she's yeah. badass yeah she's got great lines too it's wonderful the dialogue is it's just, just fantastic great i'm gonna put movie. a bunch of clips in but yeah you should it's great
2: rough plot of faster pussycat kill kill three go-go dancers dance and strip at a club and then go for a wild drive in some classic cars throughout the desert in california they get in a tussle with a young couple and they break the guy's neck They drug and kidnap the girl, they stop off at a gas station and learn of an old wheelchair-bound man that's hiding a big stash of accident settlement money, and they plot to steal it. I won't spoiler the ending, but basically everyone
1: dies.
2: (sighs) It's the perfect collision of classic cars, beatnik jazz music, Mm -hmm. classic one liners, always shouted, slapping, pulling hair, and of course, giant gadoinkers. (laughs)
3: Yes. (laughs) And leather. A lot of leather. A lot of leather. A lot of leather. Tight leather. Like tied up shirt, like what
2: do you call it when you tie up a shirt like underneath the minis? Exactly, yep. So, here's the weird thing faster Pussycat could probably play on cable unedited during the daytime at this point. Yeah, there's no nudity in it. I don't really think that there's any real bad language
3: in it. It's all innuendo, yeah. I I mean, it's fierce innuendo, it's constantly innuendo, but it's that's all it is. Yeah,
0: are you trying to say something? I never try anything, I just do it.
2: And here's a good spot to actually talk about Russ Meyer's interesting directorial style. First and foremost, unlike Doris Wishman or Jack Hill, Russ Meyer was a pretty great director. His films all have great cinematography. They're well acted for what they are. And they're cut really fucking tight. Mm-hmm. And so one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about the way that we cut these episodes when we do our podcast is we cut everything super super tight. It was yep. like that. That was his thing. Most exploitation movies at this time are very very dull in hindsight. With cameras rolling on long drawn out dialogue driven scenes. Yeah. Russ Meyer shot multiple angles, cut footage to eliminate any boring moments. His movies were really exciting. Yeah. He never lingers on anything. In fact, it said that he hated seeing actors or actresses blink on camera so he would cut away to something else when they blinked and cut dialogue scenes so tight that there was never any lag time for moviegoers to look at their watches huh his movies are a lot of things but they're never dull that's true i, I totally agree with that um have you seen faster pussycat kill kill recently no yeah i want to watch it again it's so much fun yeah it's kind of one of those movies that you're like, how does this exist? Mm-hmm. You know, because it's such a one of a kind thing. Well, you might remember that I used to have a faster pussycat kill kill T-shirt that he I used did. to wear in high school that was all a cool of shirt. the time. What happened to that? Well, I mean, that was I was in high school 20 years ago, so it's yeah. probably Gone. is nothing. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of people that talk about Russ Meyer, talk about his films, but people go to watch Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, they think they know what they're getting into. And at the end, they're like, well, that wasn't what I expected at all. I, I thought it was going to be a doorknobs movie. <laughs> nice. I'm going to run out of these soon because that I, I barely makes fine. any sense. All yeah. Right. They thought it's going to have a lot of sex. It's none of that. None it's of that.
3: actually just a really completely bonkers town movie yeah.
2: that's really well made. Yeah. Yeah.
3: It, it really is. It's great. I, I want to watch it again. It's been years. I think you had a copy and I borrowed it or something.
2: Yeah. It's streaming on YouTube, so we'll put it on the website. Oh, yeah. but most of his again. movies, Criterion just got uh, a couple of the later ones, but most of them you can watch these on YouTube for free, and I did, so. Oh, good. Yeah. Fun fact, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill bombed at the box office. Wow. It got bad reviews and lost money. It wasn't until much later that it achieved cult status, and I'll talk about it a little bit more about yeah. It was really, it was ahead of its time. It was a product of its time. It's just, it's such a bizarre. But it's got cult movie
3: written all over it. Oh, of yeah. course, this wasn't going to be a mainstream success by any stretch of the imagination. Right. And not have enough fun bags, see, right. I'm, I'm getting in on it. I love it. To be that kind of exploitation film just was never going to be a mainstream success. Right. Absolutely.
2: His next few movies were quickies and not particularly memorable. The first Mondo Topless from 1966 was a mockumentary of the still going reality craze common law cabin which we talked about (laughs) in exploitation the tagline for common law cabin was big women big appetites big trouble (laughs) he did good morning and goodbye from 1967 which was kind of an ensemble film and then finders keepers lovers weepers from 1968 which was a backstage drama of a sunset strip nudie bar and then something horrible happened he ran out of money his last couple films had made you know a little bit of money but they weren't exactly breaking the bank yeah and none of his films could be guaranteed hits especially after the box office failure of faster pussycat you know you have to remember that during this time he was an independent film director he yeah. backed these things himself he owned the rights to him he put them out he got distribution so it was like if his movies didn't make money it wasn't just like oh well the next one will there was no money to make the next one right you know He borrowed some cash from his now ex-wife, Eve, to make another movie after meeting a stripper named Erica Gavin. She worked at the same place that Tora Santana and Haji from Faster Pussycat did and answered a newspaper ad for busty actresses. Russ Meyer wanted her for the role of his new softcore movie, Vixen, and they set out to shoot. Okay. So I'd never seen Vixen before. I've heard of it. I've never seen it. I still haven't seen it. Yeah, it's bonkers.
1: Russ Meyer's Vixen. The story of a girl who loves the joy of being alive and gives herself innocently to the merry chase of life. But like any other game, life has its rules, and if we trespass beyond them, the game can become deadly.
2: The rough plot a woman named Vixen lives with her pilot husband in Canada and sexually manipulates pretty much everyone she comes in contact with, including her husband's passengers, male and female. She also seduces and sleeps with a Canadian Mountie, and then even sleeps with her own brother after a fairly controversial shower scene. Wow. It's bonkers. That part in it is just like, I can't believe this the, is happening. The shower scene, or the whole fact that she's sleeping with her brother yeah, it's is up. it kind of felt like it was a little too early this is 1967 it felt like it was a little too early for all of that
3: right i i think anytime is a little too early for that yeah but yeah
2: damn the movie starts to deal with racism and even communism in its third act and basically just kind of ends with vixen meeting a new couple that she can seduce it's part sexploitation part softcore part
1: political satire all film i don't know i couldn't take anything (laughs) but it's fine there is no stronger bond than the friendship between two men judd and niles shared such a bond a brotherly tie blind to color and yet in a moment of violent passion one led the other to the edge of destruction Both pushed by Vixen, her frustration nurtured by an empty lack of understanding. A need she sought to fill in the arms of another woman. For to Vixen, the giving of love is an act of nature. Her only weakness, a cancerous evil she was taught. That human beings are to be classified by the color of their skin. An inner sickness that will come close to destroying not only her, but those around her. It will bring them to a moment of truth in an empty sky, with the black man a fulcrum in the deadly teeterboard of life. The hatred inside Vixen fired by yet another hate, the sinister preachings of the communist puppet. Vixen, an adult motion picture experience that is rated X. The management of this theater urges you to see Russ Myers Vixen.
2: Vixen blew the fuck up. Yeah. Like, it made a fortune at the box office. And it was a huge surprise. I mean, even Russ Meyer was like, I cannot believe how much money this movie has made. It was made for 74000 and it made $8 million at the Holy box office. Fuck. <laughs> and it made him a star. Russ Meyer movies were always very niche. And, you know, they were usually for the raincoat or drive-in crowd. Right. Vixen took him into independent mainstream. Yeah. He made another movie called Cherry, Harry, and Raquel in 1970, and then Hollywood came knocking. Oh, okay. We talked about it a little in LGBT Psychopaths, Mm -hmm. but we glossed over it because I knew I was going to do this episode and needed more time to dig into it. Okay. But now I can actually say I understand how Beyond the Valley of the Dolls came to be.
3: I'm excited to hear how this happened. You don't,
2: this is probably the most research I've ever put into a single film to really try to understand it. I read Russ Meyer's autobiography. I watched countless interviews with Roger Ebert. Like I did the whole thing to really put it together. I read articles about it at the time. Like I'm pretty sure this is the full story. All right. All right. After Vixen made a fortune at the box office, Hollywood could no longer ignore Russ Meyer. Sure. In fact, the Wall Street Journal wrote a piece about him, and soon after, he was contacted by 20th Century Fox about a collaboration. Fox was in a bind around the end of the 60s. They were just off a series of big-budget flops and had a few uncertain movies on the horizon. By the summer of 1969, moviegoers had The Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde, Easy Rider, and Midnight Cowboy, and Fox was responsible for none of them. Hmm. They needed something new and preferably something outside the mainstream if they were going to keep up. So we talk about this kind of time, 1969, 1970, you know, where Hollywood was basically like finally like got the note that like the 60s had happened mm-hmm. you know and started to put out films that were very unique and and very different in things that you know they weren't these big budget m- musical right. numbers anymore Mm-mm. you know they were really finding really interesting young directors and experienced actors and you know really started to play catch up
3: well, another thing is to add to that, you know, and it's hard for us to imagine that, but all these film companies were like in the red, man. They were all like near bankruptcy. The yeah. people were stopping going to movies for the most part, they were all failing. Yeah, You know, I talked about, you talk about him, Yeah, and Black Exploitation and, yeah. and how that bailed them out. Everybody was hurting. Yep. So it's just, it's amazing. It's such a weird time right then. Yeah. Well, Russ Meyer
2: was thrilled about this. He sure. loved the fact that the studios were finally calling him. He was an outsider for his entire career. You know, yeah. as you remember, he couldn't break into Hollywood when he got out of the war. He was constantly making these movies that would sometimes make a little bit of money, but sometimes wouldn't. But mm-hmm. he felt like he was a good director and that Hollywood was turning their nose up at him because of his wazoo obsession. (laughs) So he was now finally getting a chance at a big budget, some real locations, and some actual Hollywood actresses. But, and uh, this is one of the things that I just respect him so much for, he knew he wasn't going to make a film the Hollywood way. Probably because he didn't know how to make a film the Hollywood way. A quick deal was struck that would give him the rights to a sequel titled Beyond the Valley of the Dolls after the writer of Valley of the Dolls had failed to get Fox's script approval. Mm -hmm. Russ Meyer needed a script, but knew a traditional Hollywood screenwriter would never be able to work with him, or write anything that he wanted to make. And to be fair, Fox came to him because they wanted something to compete with indie movies like Vixen that were making a huge profit off of a small investment. So they came to the right guy. You know, yeah. I just love that he was like, they came to me for something different. I'm going to do the opposite of what I'm supposed to be doing right now. You mm-hmm. know, Film critic Roger Ebert had seen The Immoral Mr. Tease at the theater when it came out, and he loved it. He had reviewed some of Russ Meyer's movies in the past and had even written an editorial to the Wall Street Journal thanking them for their piece about Russ and saying that his films were much more exciting than most of the mainstream films coming out at the time. When Russ Meyer saw this, he knew he had found his screenwriter. It took me a while to figure this out, but they were both outsiders. Russ Meyer didn't know how to make a big-budget movie, and Roger Ebert didn't know how to write a big-budget screenplay. That's why Fox came to them. They wanted an outsider movie.
3: Mm -hmm. And they got one. They definitely got one. Yep.
1: Recently, 20th Century Fox had two very heavy ideas. First, make a film called Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Second, get Russ Meyer to write, produce, and direct it. You'll meet three girls, young, beautiful, talented, a tight trio that was the heart and soul of a rock group. Life was sweet, man, but not enough. The whole world was out there just waiting, and the beat inside pushed them to where it's happening. Hollywood, USA! USA! Yeah, it happened all right. They got hooked on a non-stop merry-go-round where the only ticket you need is success. Be a winner, man, or forget it. When they made that first party, it was like too late. The whole thing was moving, reaching out, and they dubbed it. Whites, yellows, and reds were more than just colors, man. They were it. The magic dream pills. The chicks were wild and groovy. The studs were cool and cruel. The eyes so warm. The smiles so friendly. But watch the teeth. They bite deep. Faces, so many faces, calling, begging, me love me save me don't listen if you hear him you've had it come on open your mouth wider Here, taste life man life like it hell no tough it's a one-way trip all the way down love rape murder dope grass abortion suicide something for everybody the people who make beyond the valley of the dolls come alive are the largest introduction of fresh young talent ever presented in a major motion picture Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is not a sequel. There's never been anything like it before. If you've been waiting for something new, waiting for a film to shake you into the freaked out, mind blowing scene of right now, then come and see it, man, and find out why it's called Beyond the Valley of the Dolls from 20th Century Fox.
2: It's funny to look back at it now to say like, oh, Russ Meyer and Roger Ebert, what a crazy collaboration of two Hollywood people. Uh They weren't Hollywood at all. They were the opposite of that, you know? So it's just really funny to look at it and be like, oh, right. Roger Ebert was a no-name film critic. At the time, you know? yes, And Russ Meyer made...
3: Bristol flicks.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so the two of them got together and quickly wrote a script based on an all-girl rock band that went to L.A. to make it big and fell into the depths of the rich and famous drug fame liquor party sex world, resulting in a triple homicide and ultimately redemption at the end. That was kind of what Russ Meyer did, albeit now with a much bigger budget and a slew of Hollywood executive perks, like leftover sets from their giant spectacle musicals of the mid-60s. The movie was shot quickly and delivered under budget. It was submitted to the MPAA and received an X rating, much to Russ Meyer and Fox's dismay. But it seems Fox wanted this Russ Meyer indie movie out so bad, and by this time Midnight Cowboy had won the Oscar for Best Picture with an X rating, so they decided to push it out anyway. Russ Meyer wanted to go back and cut in more sex and nudity since it was already an X-rated movie, but it was kind of on the lighter side of an X. Yeah. But Fox rushed it out without any edits. They wanted this fucker out, you Mm -hmm. know. And that's how we got Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Wow. First things first, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls was shot on a nine hundred thousand dollar budget, which was huge for Russ Meyer. That's
3: a big budget, then.
2: And it made about seven million at the box office. So, that's not the biggest success story of all time, but it was easily considered a blockbuster for Fox. Right. Fox probably would have been a little bit more impressed, but unfortunately for Russ Meyer, those uncertain movies that they had in the pipeline that I talked about were MASH, mm. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and Patton. Holy so shit. So they classes. had the biggest, you know, they were like, oh, we have all of these just regular movies or whatever. They were all ended up to be huge blockbusters. Yeah, every single one of them. So to make matters even worse, they also released the X rated Myra Breckinridge just a few weeks after Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. That was an X rated movie movie. Mm-hmm. And it was a huge box office bomb. The critics trashed it. So both of those movies ended up kind of falling into the same category that Fox took risks on and ultimately didn't pay off in the long run. And Fox has pretty much ignored the movie ever since. So even though it was successful, and it did make money, it kind of got lumped into these two x rated movies right. that were, you know, unsafe bets for them. But then they got all these three giant big budget classics. And right. so they were just like, well, we'll never take a risk again. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it was wasn't the bomb that Myra Breckenridge was, but it got, got lu-
3: lumped in with lumped it. In. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Russ
2: Meyer loved the movie and he considered it his masterpiece. And Roger Ebert stuck by it all those years until his death. And here's the thing like, they made something really unique. Yeah. Neither of them stopped to question what was happening or why. They just went for it. When asked was the movie supposed to mean anything, be serious or a comedy, have cultural implications, especially when it came down to the Manson family, the murder spree. Uh, gender roles, like LGBT issues, they were just like, we got some money to make a movie that wasn't a sequel to Valley of the Dolls, but was called Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. So we made that movie. I'm not going to go into whether I thought it was a good movie or not. But here's some interesting facts I learned. Russ Meyer wanted Ebert working pretty much at all times. They stayed at a hotel while they were writing, and if Russ didn't hear Ebert typing, then he didn't think he was working. So, like, they would sit there, and Russ Meyer would, you know, be like typing a script. And if he would like pause to think or kind of put something together, Russ Meyer would be like, Why aren't you working? And he was like, I'm I'm working. I just am not gonna type all the time. I just thought that was really funny. Mm,
3: that's kinda of funny.
2: But that's kind of how a Russ Meyer movie went. A script was written in a few days, you cast and you film. So pretty much everyone's first ideas got written down. And then when they went to set, you know, they figured out the rest while they were filming. Right. I mentioned earlier how tight Russ Meyer cut his films. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is no exception. There are barely spots enough for the actors to breathe in between cuts. It's so crazily cut that some critics would say years later that his cutting style was MTV 10 years before MTV existed. Hmm. At the end of the Beyond the Valley of the Dolls commentary with Roger Ebert, he says, people ask me if I thought Beyond the Valley of the Dolls was a good movie. And I always say, well, it didn't bore me. (laughs) And I think that's great because... I watched it again and, you know, I I talk shit about it in LGBT psychopaths. Mm -hmm. Um,
3: it is, it's nuts
2: it's hard to say whether it's in a good way or in a bad way because it's so nuts that there's really nothing to hang your hat on. You know, it's like, it's everything. It's everything in the world and then (laughs) things on top of it. So Mm -hmm. there's nothing to kind of say, oh, as a parody, it's great. Or as a murder sexploitation movie, it's great. Or as a musical, it's great. Like, it's so much of everything that you're just smacked in the face with things until the movie's over. Hmm. But I'm just so glad it exists because, and it's impossible to say whether it's good or whether it's bad. It's just, that's not that type of experience at the theater. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Fox would eventually separate themselves from Russ Meyer, but they didn't do it before they made a second film with him called The Seven Minutes from 1971. Russ Meyer had started moving away from sexploitation films as they began to kind of go out of style because this was kind of like the beginning of the rise of hardcore pornography chic, which we talked about in the golden age of porn. Mm-hmm. Interesting side note, Russ Meyer was asked numerous times why he didn't go into pornography and his answer was always very simple. He didn't want to go in business with the mob. And yeah. it was like, that was who ran pornography. And he was, was just like, I don't, I just don't want to do that. It wasn't like he was above it in any way. He was right. just kind of like, I don't want to, you don't want to break the law, really. Yeah, no shit. Anyway, the seven minutes was a bomb. He tried another type of film called Black Snake in 1973, which was a drama about slavery. Hmm. I don't think I have to tell you that didn't go over well. <clears throat> no, I don't think it did. Realizing he was really only cut out to make a certain type of movie. He made the film Super Vixens in 1975. Mm-hmm. Super Vixens was not only a return to some of the big blinkered stars from the past few movies, it was a return to what made him famous, sex movies. Yeah. But this time the film was really turned up. Audiences were offended. The critics trashed it. It was extremely violent. It was homophobic. It was kind of upsetting. He was in the middle of a very messy and public divorce with his third wife, and the movie was pretty sadistic against women. It had an angry tone, unlike the fun of most of his previous films. And of course, it was a runaway hit. Huh? He made it for two hundred and twenty thousand dollars. It grossed sixteen million worldwide.
3: Holy! Shit, is that his <laughs> biggest profit? Yeah. Yeah, it's insane. Crazy.
0: Russ Meyer, the rural Cellini, serves up a colossal motion picture geared for the young and old alike, the sophisticated and the blue collar. A motion picture born to entertainment, vibrant. Spellbinding, jarring, rocking, gut-wrenching. Yet so hilariously funny in its delivery. Russ Meyer's Super Vixens. An all-out assault on today's sexual mores and more. Frontal attack against women's lib. Blasting through the male machismo syndrome. Kicking the crap out of conventions. Hang-ups, convictions, obsessions. The whole bag. Cops, robbers, sexually aggressive females... Rednecks, sick men of war, unfaithful wives, impotence, bedroom prowess. The 32-second orgasm, cuckolding, the wrist bazooka, momism, breast fixation versus fellatio, racing cars, self-abuse, even death and reincarnation. Russ Meyer's supervictions. A cinematic smorgasbord of
2: mind-boggling beauty. He followed Super Vixens with the film Up from 1976, which was another crazy, violent, softcore flick. For a while after that, he worked on the punk movie Who Killed Bambi, which was supposed (laughs) to be the Sex Pistols' big break into film. Mm -hmm. Roger Ebert was helping write it. Actually, I didn't mention it, but Roger Ebert helped write most of the later films under a pen name, since the Chicago Tribune didn't want him moonlighting with with Russ Meyer that's funny it never got made it ran out of money but the last Russ Meyer film was Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens from 1979 which was a little more of a return to his comedy roots Mm -hmm. there's not a huge amount of information about it you can watch it online but it was more of a kind of kindergarten type humor, mm. you know, movie. Right. Um. Very lowbrow humor. Yeah, I think it did alright at the box office. I didn't really see any numbers, but his biography points out that by 1975 the studios had basically mass marketed all of Russ Meyer's tricks from sex plots like Bob Carroll, Ted and Alice, and A Clockwork Orange to violence like Straw Dogs and The Exorcist, mm-hmm. and then of course porn like Deep Throat. There just like wasn't really a place for him anymore. You know, by, by that mid, time, by yeah. The mid-70s. He retired from filmmaking, but he worked on numerous other projects, including his three-volume autobiography. Three Three volumes? volumes? It basically took him 30 years to, like, write his own autobiography. I didn't read it. It was a little bit... I was like, I I don't have time to read this and then get the episode out. So I read his autobiography, which is great. I'll put that on the website. But one of the really interesting things that he did was when home video started to be a thing, having retained the rights to all of his independent movies, he had his films painstakingly transferred to VHS and sold them to stores for a hefty price so he wasn't just like yeah make a shitty transfer and throw it in a box or whatever he did a I mean he made sure that the transfers of his films were meticulously done and then he sold them for a fortune it sounded like a crazy idea because everybody was just slapping on VHS and send it out to the video stores and he retained all of the rights he made them call him directly to like sell him these very expensive copies of his VHS movies and they did great on home video they made him a second fortune yeah so by the mid 80s and through the 90s he started to gain a new audience of cult film folks you know that was when kind of all those 70s movies started to you know kind of come back yeah and of course, once they went to go find the movies, they were all in perfect condition. He was a filmmaker, you know what I mean? he—it yeah, yeah, yeah. was like, It wasn't just like, oh, we can't find this movie, it's lost somewhere. They could find all of his movies, and they were expensive, and he mm-hmm. made money off of all of that. Huh, that's great. So all of a sudden, Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill, out of nowhere was considered his classic, even though he practically disowned it since it didn't make any money. Some of his films went back into theaters, museums, and film societies did retrospectives of his work. Mm-hmm. John Waters, Quentin Tarantino, Rob Zombie, they all got interested. In him, he managed to live long enough to see the effects of everything he did on popular culture, you know, which is awesome. That is awesome. His last few years were very tumultuous, as he still went all over Hollywood drinking heavily, but with advancing Alzheimer's. Uh, he died in 2004 and left most of his money to cancer foundations in honor of his mother, who had died of cancer. A few of his army buddies and uh, the starlets from his movies got the rest. He'd amassed a fortune. Um, oh, I bet. Yeah. Yeah, clearly. So that's my episode on Russ Meyer. I have it's some fascinating. themes that I want to talk to you a little bit about. Okay. Um, but what do you think?
3: No, it's great. It's fascinating. I mean, he's a fascinating guy. You know, and I, you were my gateway to Russ Meyer movies. I, I knew of them, but you had them. And you yeah. let me borrow a few of them. And, you know, that was your thing. So, yeah, he's a fascinating guy. I didn't know anything about it. And I like your series of, you know, filmmaker biographies that you seem to have run throughout our podcast yeah, season. Sure. So. Yeah, it was
2: kind of a surprise. I didn't really, we didn't, we never talked about this when we were concepting it. I did the Doris Wishman episode and then every, you know, I've, I've continually done a filmmaker. So, yeah, I just... I loved researching him. I just thought he was so I'd seen 3 or 4 of his movies. I thought yeah. he was fascinating. There were a lot of questions that I had, so once I like really got to the bottom of it, I just I love the story of him constantly being an outsider and then he finally gets this, you know, shot at making a big Hollywood movie and you just expect him to sell out and make this You know, terrible mainstream movie because he's got all the money now. And he was just like, fuck that. I'm going to do what makes me me, but with a lot more money. I just thought that that was
3: inspiring. And he co opted or got Roger Ebert to write the fucking thing. That's such a weird thing, too. And I know Roger Ebert likes some exploitation, but just. You know especially like when we talked about the Christmas episode and bad Santa's go to hell, mm-hmm. the movie Silent Night, Deadly Night, he, he raked that over. That. The, the Cole hated yeah. that fucking movie, which it's, I mean, that's a Santa exploitation, that's the most exploitive like movie ever. And yeah. I, and it's not a good movie, but I mean, it wasn't the you know, the second coming of Satan or some shit, but he hated it, yeah. And I'm like, dude, you. That. You wrote trash. Right. Yeah. You know? And it's
2: funny, I mean, I didn't realize this because, you know, he, he uh wrote under a pen name, but I mean he was the screenwriter for all of Russ Meyer's films after that. So, yeah, so. they loved working together. They were great friends. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and so meanwhile, you know, these terrible Russ Meyer movies are coming out and Roger and Roger Ebert never reviewed another one because it was a conflict of interest. Yeah, but, sure. But you know, I mean people are like trashing this and he's like, I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was so That's pretty so funny. interesting. And yeah. And also, you know, the idea that that, you know, Roger Ebert was just a, a very young, unknown film critic from the Chicago Tribune, yeah. just—I never thought about the fact that you just think of them as being these huge names in in cinema. They weren't; they were independent, yeah. you know, and independent of each other. I thought it was fascinating.
3: That is very fascinating. Right. Yeah, I learned a lot.
2: I, you know, I don't want to get too highbrow, but I do want to talk about the idea of feminism just a little bit. Sure. Because you know, one of the things that they always said about the movie Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, and, and probably a lot of his movies, are that they are kind of surprisingly feminist Yeah, you know even when it comes down to roughies and you know stuff like that which are women in peril there was a a line that I wrote down which is it's the woman who's the sexual aggressor in a Russ Meyer movie men are the typecast roles they all are exactly the same right it's a it's a powerful aggressive sexual female that
3: is what all of his movies are wrapped around so you know I found that interesting and yeah I did too I don't know in the big picture if that's troubling or if that's wrong because it, you know, and like I said, I've only seen a few of his movies. But yeah, with that aggressive sexual female, it's sort of taking the male role and just flipping it.
2: Right. In right. a lot
3: of ways. So some would argue that's not feminism. It's, just, it's not. It's just making a male role into a female.
2: Right. I think when, you know, when people say that it's feminism, I, I think they're probably incorrect. I, don't, I think he wanted to make money off of movies and he really liked Honkers. Did I use Honkers already? No, I don't, th- I don't
3: think he used honkers. He really liked the balcony. and He also made something that was completely different.
2: And mm-hmm. so I think we can now look back on it and say maybe that was an early form of exploitation feminism, although he sure. certainly wasn't intentionally doing it.
3: No, yeah. yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, that's that makes
2: sense. Another fun, interesting point. Um, so when Russ Meyer first met Roger Ebert, Roger Ebert was like, where do you find these women? Like, where are you finding? You were, yeah. And so Russ Meyer said... After they reach a certain cup size, they just find me. Oh, wow, which was so funny. That and is like funny. It, he didn't even have to try anymore. It was just like once they looked down and they were like, "Huh." You know what, I, be- I bet I'd be good at being in a Russ Meyer movie.
3: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good no, that point. That's super funny. That is funny.
2: And I'm not going to go too much into it because it's too highbrow for us. But the fact that Hollywood and really popular culture kind of co opted his ideas and then made him not legitimate anymore, popular culture has co opted milk factories now. So. <laughs> wow. Milk yes. Factories. I had to pull that one out. That was great. All right, that's going to be my last one. Okay. All right. Well, that was my episode on Russ Meyer. That I, was
3: fascinating.
2: Okay, good. I tried not to, you know, I mean, I read so much, it took me forever to read the book because Russ Meyer's autobiography. Th- this isn't even his three-volume autobiography. His biography was like 900 pages. Jeez. It was just like, oh my God, like this is someone, or somebody like Doris Wishman, where it was really hard to find a lot of information about her. Mm-hmm. This is the opposite of Russ Meyer. Russ Meyer wanted everywhere. every second of his life known so right and it was in that book apparently yeah so i did a broad sweep of uh russ meyer i i hope i did him justice but
3: this one was fun yeah, yeah. i enjoyed it and i learned a lot of stuff it's great yeah so all yeah. right
2: well thanks everyone we'll be back next week
3: All right. See you then. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Slums of Film History. You can find us on the web at slumsoffilmhistory.com where you can find links to some of the movies we talked about today along with pictures, videos, and additional resources as well as Sunday Slum Day, our weekly recommendation for the best and sometimes worst films every Sunday night. If you want to keep up with us, we're on Facebook and Twitter where we share
2: out a lot of additional content. And as always, please fact check us and let us know if we left anything out. We're not professionals, just two friends that love gross movies.